0: Hi, mining community. Welcome back to another episode of the Dig Deep, the mining podcast. And today's guest is James Sykes, who is the CEO and director of Baseload Energy, a fully funded uranium exploration company that has achieved resounding success within the region, like holding a portfolio of highly prospective uranium properties in the eastern side of the Athabasco Basin. James brings over 10 years of experience in uranium exploration and discovery in the Athabasco Basin, um, where his experience has enabled him to lead the technical team for Next Gen Energy um, to make the Arrow Discovery during the first two GEO campaigns, um, which is the largest development stage uranium deposit in Canada. Um, so that's enough for me, and I want to welcome James to the podcast. Hey there, James.
1: I'm doing awesome. Thank you very much for thank you very much, Rob, for inviting me onto this.
0: No, and I appreciate your time as well. So, I wondered if you can um, give us a, a background of yourself, um, so our audience knows a little bit about your uh, your career.
1: Yeah. So, just to expand on what you've said, so I've been in in uranium exploration since 2006, it's basically when I have started my professional career and it's always been in the uh, Northern Saskatchewan and the Athabasca basin area exploring for high grade uranium. For those who don't know, Athabasca basin is the preeminent jurisdiction for high grade uranium. It's, you know, it's elephant country, as, as some people like to call it. So I started out with Denison Mines uh, just as a junior geo and project manager, and I was part of the team that led to prioritizing two areas that have become uh, deposits, and that's the Phoenix deposit and the Griffin deposit. Now my role in a lot of that, again being a junior guy, was I would go out and I'd look at historic core and start reinterpreting things. And uh, one of the cores that I came across, uh, zk four and zk six, which helped us decide to go to what became the Griffin area. So I unfortunately left the company prior to those discoveries, but I do like to say that I, I had my small part to play in there. The reason why I did leave Denison though was to go to Forum, uh, Forum Uranium at the time, are now Forum Energy Metals. They had a uh, preeminent Exploration team, guys with a lot of experience, guys who have made discoveries. Boone Tan, Ken Wheatley. Uh, These are the guys that I consider to be the best of the best. So going there was especially beneficial for me. I got to pick all. I got to pick their brains quite a bit. Uh, We share similar music interests, especially Ken and I with uh, King Crimson. So that's a beautiful. That's a beautiful thing. Not a lot of people know King Crimson are, but anyway, (laughs) it's uh, yeah. It was a great great time, but unfortunately, it was 2008 and the world collapsed. So. Uh, forum kind of well they had to they had to let me go so they can conserve cash fortunately enough hathor exploration had made their rough rider discovery uh, earlier that year so forum got me on to hathor exploration and so i did what i did best there and i started looking at the old core everything that had been drilled previously i started putting together a geological model that just showed that you know, we were kind of drilling in the wrong direction and everything trending was trending east west so as soon as we turned the direction, started drilling that east-west corridor, lo and behold, uh, we made two, extra, two additional discoveries. So that was uh, an, another highlight of my career right there. And then I was put onto another project, Russell Lake, which and that's uh, a different area. It's between Key Lake and MacArthur River. And what I did there was I took a lot of my thesis that I have learned up to that point and i applied it to that project and looking for basement hosted mineralization lo and behold i've discovered three different zones of mineralization on that property that nobody had ever targeted before so it kind of started kind of started piecing everything together saying okay well this works this works this doesn't this doesn't but they were uneconomic discoveries and just could could warrant some follow-up but rio tinto bought out Hathor. uh you know, one of the best, one of the best plays around in quite a while. I found out that I wasn't uh, a Rio Tinto type of guy, so I was looking for another company. And right around the time, Next Gen Energy had just acquired all the assets from Mega Uranium, so I got in touch with them. You know, we exchanged emails, phone calls, and when they raised capital, they brought me and a colleague of mine from Rio Tinto onto NextGen. and together we made the aero discovery. So, I'll. You know, A lot of that was just putting what I have learned throughout the years into perspective. And Arrow was, in all honesty, it was actually kind of an easy discovery for us. So that just solidified a lot of the thesis that I've had going up to this point. And so, basically, after NextGen, uh, just joined on with a couple other companies, got my feet, feet wet in the rare earth element industry, but now I'm back into Uranium and running Baseload Energy, taking everything I've learned from the past. Uh, what I like to say is that I've got 550 million pounds of Uranium Discovery to my name, you know, directly and indirectly, as I've just described. So, I do like to know what I'm doing. And this is where I think Baseload really sets ourselves apart from all of our other, all of our other peers in the area.
0: Yeah. Um, I wonder if you can give us, uh, obviously, tell us a little bit more about uh, Baseload Energy.
1: So Baseload Energy, we are a uranium exploration company focused in the Athabasca Basin area of northern Saskatchewan. We are looking for high-grade uranium because we know that is what makes the deposits tick. Uh, they're the most valuable assets in the world, Sagara Lake and River. We formed last year in June, so we're just over a year old, and we listed at $0.10 cents on the TSXV. Our stock, tim- stock symbol is FIND, F-I-N-D. We're also listed on the OTCQB as B-S-E-N-F. So again, we, we listed last year, and listed at 10 cents with our IPO. By seven months down the road, December as of last year, we had reached the twenty, And a lot of that was based on uh, a lot of retail and institutional investors uh, knowing my career up to this point and really banking on uh, on the jockey, I guess. So we had a fantastic run and that, that's a 12 times return within seven months. So investors are definitely very happy that uh, we have come down since then. We're floating around 60 cents right about now and extremely happy to be at this price. You know, we're, we're fully funded. We raised over, we raised about $7 million last year, uh, flow through in hard dollars. So we're fully cashed up to get all of our exploration done. We stake three wonderful projects, uh, catharsis, hook and shadow, all with the, all following suit on the thesis that I've developed up to this point. So fully funded to get these projects going, get to our diamond drilling stage, make some discoveries, we hope, and just watch this whole rocket uh, take off because now is the time to invest into Uranium. The the market's hot. It, It hasn't been like this for about 15 years now.
0: Yeah. Can you just explain then a little bit about the uranium market? Now, obviously, as you mentioned, it's it's hot now. Um, I've actually started, I probably had the last six months, understanding the uranium market a little bit more. But I wonder if you, obviously, you're the expert, I wonder if you can give our audience a, a sort of overview of the uranium market, why it's needed, especially for the, the um, I suppose, green economy that's um, that the governments are sort of promoting out there. So, yeah, just wanted you to give us a... Um, overview of why uranium is important.
1: Yep. Uranium's always been important. That's the funny thing. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's always been a green energy, but it's, it's been compounded with a lot of fear and a lot of uh, stigma that it, it's hard to get over people's perception of uranium energy. They all see it. They all see Chernobyl. They all see Three Mile Island and now Fukushima. When you really think of everything that happened, yeah, Chernobyl was terrible. That was a that was an absolutely bad uh, disaster, but it was also a flawed design that nobody uses today in their nuclear reactors. So without without Chernobyl, uranium energy is the safest form of energy, and it's been going on since the fifties. So you're looking at seventy years of safe and highly efficient, productive baseload energy power. Now the world does see that. You know the world governments, especially, they do recognize it. And more recently in the past year, ever since COVID, I've just seen governments clamoring for green energy, uh, green energy sources and nuclear has been touted as as being it. But again, got to get over that that fear hurdle. So there's kind of a difference between the market now than what we're seeing in the past. What we're seeing now is that Uranium demand, I guess, nuclear energy build-outs has increased. We have more nuclear reactors on the planet now than we did about 20 years ago, 15 years ago. However one of the problems that we are seeing is that there's not nearly as much supply. So 15, 20 years ago, uranium spot price went from about $10 per pound up to $140 per pound. So especially between 2005, 2007, it just skyrocketed. You know, there are great investor stories out there that people made millions to billions of dollars. Uh, companies like, such as Paladin went from pennies to tens of dollars. Now, absolutely wonderful uh, investor opportunities. And we're in that same situation right now. All of the fundamentals are the same, except for, yes, demand is a lot higher now and supply is far less now. So 15, 20 years ago, you had uh, production in in Canada, in the Athabasca Basin area, you had the States producing, you had Australia, Africa, Kazakhstan, Uh, a whole bunch of jurisdictions were producing uranium. A lot of these were low cost or... Uh, higher cost operations around that $60 to $80 per pound operating costs. Whereas today, nobody's producing. You now there's there's one mine in, in Canada that's producing uranium. There's IS, ISL operations in the States that are producing, and they're not going full force either right now. Kazakhstan's even pulled back. Uh, Africa's not producing. Australia's not producing. So where is all this supply going to come from? And, it, and it's not a turnkey operation. You can't just say, okay, yeah, we'll get you supply next week. Oh, this is going to take six to eighteen months for a lot of these mines to come back, and especially the ones—the African and American, uh, some of the Australian operations—that did require that sixty to eighty dollar pound uranium price. We're not there. We're still at thirty bucks a pound uranium. So for those to come online, they need that higher incentive. There have been a lot of a lot of uh, uranium companies that were buying off the spot market. So there's. Uh, uh, there is physical uranium that could be purchased off the off the spot market. So these companies were purchasing off the spot market to help increase or help, uh, I guess, remove a lot of the supply that was out there. Which, in theory, with nobody producing, your spot price goes up. So there there have been some you know, pretty interesting. Uh, pretty interesting scenarios that that, the companies have been doing to get that spot price moving, get that long-term contract price. Contracts hopefully will be coming back to market. So once you see these, the the producers like Cameco, uh, Kazakhstan, uh, once you see them signing these long-term contracts, we'll see the spot price move. And once the spot price moves, everybody moves up. It's just, it's like the tide coming in, all the boats are going to move no matter how big the ship, even the little dinghies will go up.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, going back to obviously uh, base, base loads and um, exploration, I just wonder if you can give us an overview of what's happening with your um, expiration targets.
1: Yeah, we've kind of taken a different approach. So as I discussed on you know, my history and, and how I how I see things. We've taken a different approach to exploration in the Athabasca Basin area, something that we've coined Athabasca 2.0. Now that thesis result revolves around the idea that a lot of uranium mineralization is hosted in basement rocks. So to understand the Athabasca Basins, it's pretty easy. So basement rocks are these crystalline rocks. Let's just, you know, consider them granites and other types of rocks. But they, you know, they sit on the bottom. And then about 1.7 billion years ago you had a lot of sandstone come in and just you know, created a basin, so a sink, sink of sand. Now that sand is full of water. And the original, uh, I guess a lot of the original exploration done back in the, the 60s, 70s, 80s, they're all looking for these deposits that occurred right between the basement and the sandstone contact, literally right there. It's called the unconformity contact. And there are a number of deposits that are hosted along that contact so that that you know that drove the model and people had horse blinders on and said you had to find the unconformity otherwise you didn't you know there was no chance of uranium so anything outside of today's Athabasca basin nobody would really explore for it it was kind of looked at as dead horse but when you when you actually see what's going on uh, especially there's a lot of deposits at that unconformity but they're not mineable uh, there, there are some great deposits out there, 50 million pounds, over 5% U308, which is extremely high grade. They can't get mined because they're too deep. In in a lot of other commodities around the world, an a open pit, you can go 200 meters deep, no problem. If the rocks are competent enough, you can go deeper than that. However, not in the Athabasca. In the basin, you can only go down to 100 meters max if possible. And that's because that sandstone is porous. You've got water infiltrating. And what do you do with that water? you got to pump it out. You're looking at 70,000 liters, 40,000 liters of water per day to pump out. Where are you going to put it? If it's it's coming in and, and interacting with the uranium, well, then there's possibility of contamination. So now you have to treat that. It's just it's a lot of steps to get through it. Plus to mine that out. If if you have to go underground to mine that out, that's expensive because you need a freeze wall curtain. So you freeze all the sand above, so you can mine right in the middle. Now there's only two mines that have ever gone underground, and they're both monsters: Cigar Lake, MacArthur River. Both over 300 million pounds. Both over 20 percent, 20 percent average initial grades for when they started mining. Those are the monsters, and they're very rare. So again, I, I kind of developed this whole thesis and we know, we know that you know, it's not really the unconformity that controls mineralization. It's the structures in the basement rocks. And there, as of recently, there are a lot of structurally controlled basement-hosted uranium deposit. Arrow, uh, which I helped discover, was, was one of the crowning achievements because that just solidified everything that I have had seen in the past. And now I can apply that going forward saying, your unconformity is here, the bulk of arrow is down here. Now you can have glaciation remove all of the sandstone, gone. And you can have this much basement rock still. You can remove that with glaciation. You're still not going to see arrow, not on the ground. You need geophysics to get there. That's our target. We're looking for those things where the glaciers have removed sandstone, removed a little bit of basement, getting us to that open pit stage that we can find an arrow and just start plucking that out with an open pit style instead of going underground. And that's very possible. You know, we're we're very confident that the sandstone was a lot larger, and covered the area that that our projects are in nowadays. Uh, you know, you look at you look at a map of the Athabasca Basin. That's what we see now. We're talking about sandstone that was formed 1.7 billion, not million, billion years ago. It's extremely old. Seen many glaciers, many glacial events come come along. Uh, Saskatchewan used to be a mountain belt. Now, you'd never guess it coming out to this province it is so flat you can see your dog run for days but it is it used to be a mountain belt that's all been eroded it's all been glaciated everything's been 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 removed so we've let nature do most of our i guess excavating force we just have to find the deposits that we do think are out there
0: yeah um so obviously you've been in a, a, a few different uh, commodities but what what why did you, why are you interested in nuclear energy I and mean, what, what got you into sort of focusing more in, in, in this particular uh, commodity?
1: Two reasons. I guess one that was, that laid hidden for me until I actually started, started learning about geology was my dad was actually a uranium miner. Okay. <laughs> he, yeah, I, I never, you know, I never put two and two together, but I knew he was mining for uranium, but. I didn't really see or understand the commodity behind it and why it was so important. And it wasn't until I really started looking in, studying geology anyway, that I just, I have a penchant for lights and power. Uh, You know, I, I, I like the idea of the world having power at its fingertips, that if you want to turn on a light, the light will turn on. If you want, you know, if you want things to work, you need power. And I just saw nuclear energy as being the answer to those to those scenarios, to those questions. Like, well, how are we gonna keep our 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 houses cold when we've got these massive heat waves coming? I right, used Saskatchewan just had 30, 30 degrees up uh, for the last week or so. So it's been very hot. Air conditioning is running hot. I don't want it, I don't want the AC to go down, be uncomfortable for everybody. So we need energy. And that's Basically, the thesis behind all that—it's just, yeah—I'm a firm believer in energy, and I know we're going to need more energy, uh, green energy sources as we, as our civilization, humanity progresses forward. Because everything that we're using nowadays is just—it's all energy intensive. You know, uh, your earbuds right now—you have to recharge those, right? That's yep. energy. Everything. It's so—it's a lot of little simple things, but they all add up. Cryptocurrencies and the mining the the cryptocurrency mining that's involved in that is so electrical energy intensive and if governments are seriously considering accepting cryptocurrencies we got to do something to the grids because our current grid is not going to support anything like that electric vehicles we need more energy sources and it just it can't be energy sources that that you can't rely on wind solar love them love the ideas they're great for uh, for hitting those mixes when when things fluctuate but they're not baseload energy you need a constant energy source in the background that's nuclear energy that's my world
0: yeah um what makes base load different to other um, junior explorers in the, in the region and um, why would sort of investors, Look at, look at you guys and I suppose how, how do you differ from, from those other competitors of yours?
1: That Athabasca 2.0 thesis that I described, looking for those open pitable basement hosted type of deposits, other companies have done that, but I just think the way that we have approached it is a little bit different. Uh, you know, I'm a, I've always looked at structures and I can understand structures. And so I think that where we have staked our projects have very interesting structures to to allow fluid pathways to to permeate and and deposit uranium. Uh, so that that's kind of the one I think that's one of the biggest differences that we have is just you know we we've taken a model that has worked we know it's worked in the past and we're just looking at it differently where we're, we're you know, stepping outside of people's comfort ranges where we're tearing open the box and just lo- looking at completely new ideas. We're applying innovative technologies like uh, airborne MT surveys, uh, magnetotellurics, so we can see deeper, so we can see how these structures, I guess, move and how they, uh, how they, how they differ along strike at, at kilometers of depth. And that's kind of what we need to see. We need to understand these fluid pathways. So that in itself, uh, my expertise—I'd you know, like to say that I know what I'm doing out there. It feels like I do. <laughs> uh, kind of have the track record to to bank on that. So there's a lot of people who who have invested in my career. A lot. Uh, I've helped companies uh, make billions of dollars for investors. Next Gen Hathor, uh, even some other companies. So that's. Now I've got that record going and I'd like to keep that going. I'd like all of our investors to benefit from what we've done. I guess the other big thing of why Baseload versus our peers is if you look at our our share structure, we have the lowest amount of shares outstanding of, of all of our peers. Uh, So a discovery in that sense, just, it would again, shoot us through the roof, uh, potentially that's what we're all hoping for. And our market cap could be much, much higher. So that's, we think that investors will get more bang for their buck in baseload, especially if we do have a discovery on the horizon. Yeah, it's that's that's, that's the big game changer, and that's where everyone's going to cash in nicely.
0: Yeah, um, why would someone invest in sort of uranium? I suppose at the moment, compared to say gold, silver, or copper, or any other the uh, the battery metals, um, and where is the sort of current market at the moment? So, of. The- Past
1: five years or even more so, it's never been the question of if uranium will come back. It's always been the question of when uranium will come back. And over the past 12 to 18 months, we have seen uranium is bouncing back. We are seeing uranium spot prices at thirty dollars per pound. We haven't seen that for years, especially after Fukushima. Everything just kind of dropped off, and we hit doldrums. But uranium, the spot market is pricing back, and as I described earlier, that when as the price of uranium start, starts increasing, all the boats, explorers, developers, they will all rise with the tide. So that's that's the easiest answer to to why investors should get into Uranium, because it's happening. We're from people that I talk to, guys who know the market far better than I do. Uh, I've heard, well, they've mentioned, we're looking at about 12 to 18 months, probably less than 12 months even, that we'll start to see contracts coming back on. We'll see the spot price moving up to that $40, maybe even 50 or $60 range within the next 12 to 18 months. So it's, it's definitely exciting times when your commodity is going to jump two times as much you can expect all of your everybody within that commodity to to also go up. Gold, gold's at what seventeen hundred dollars. Will you see that bounce up to thirty four hundred bucks within the same time frame? I don't follow gold, in all honesty, I can't give an honest answer. But it, you know, just based on based on what I feel, I don't think it would. So I think I think some of the biggest banks for your buck is definitely in the uranium market. And again, with with the government's pushes for green energy. And we are seeing more buildouts. China's going. China's going hardcore into nuclear buildouts, and rightfully so. Uh, I visited there for the first time a couple of years ago, and I've heard all the stories. I've seen pictures of the smog and pollution and air, but witnessing it for myself, yeah, it was disgusting. It was absolutely disgusting. So I'm I'm glad they're making a move to a cleaner uh, cleaner energy source for for their India's building out uh, largely uh, Middle East you know there, there are a lot of new builds coming online so it's um, it's going to keep growing.
0: Yeah certainly what would you how, how would the uranium market look over the next uh, obviously five to ten years obviously if there is a push for uranium how do you see the market over the next five to ten years it, and how many sort of operations are going to be online compared to what they are now?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I wish I had a crystal ball so that I could <laughs> yeah. you know, give a definitive answer. But from, from what I see happening is that the supply is going to stay down. Unless new discoveries are made, things that can be fast tracked into production. Yeah, there's a lot of ISL operations, in situ leach, just in case uh, you didn't know what I was referring to when, with ISL. There's a lot of operations that are coming online uh, through ISL that, that look promising, but they're still not the answer. They're still not the be all. Kazakhstan, uh, they've probably depleted their, their easiest accessible uranium. Sigara Lake probably isn't going to have feedstock past 2030. Uh, Macarthur River. Nobody knows what's going to happen with that, except for obviously the guys at Cameco. Where is where is the next uranium supply going to come from? R- uh, Rossing, from what I heard, is should be you know should be on the out. Uh, Husab in in I think it's Namibia. Uh, I can't remember. Um, but the uh, Orano operation that's on its way out. You've had Ranger close in Australia. That's done with. You've got. Big mines who have contributed to to the uranium cycle that are just they're not there, and there's nothing that is on stream to to replace them. So it's going to be, I would like to believe that the uranium spot price will continue on a nice upward trend, a a nice uh, positive slope. If we go, if we spike up again, that's still great for investors. You know, everyone's going to be happy, but we'll fall down probably just as equally hard. What I can see over the next five, 10 years, if with no Fukushima's, uranium should just keep going up and up and up and up. Yeah, I and don't a, know what spot price we'll see, but...
0: And how long does it take to get a uranium mine up and running? And again, I suppose a, a bit of an average average length of time, obviously from discovery through permitting, yeah. etc. cetera.
1: ISLs, from what I'm aware of, are typically a lot quicker. I, yeah, I, I can't comment on anything outside of... Outside of Canada, with with any uh, reasonable assurances, uh, just speculative. But uh, what I can tell about ISL operations, no matter what jurisdiction, they're pretty quick to get up and going, which is one of the benefits behind them, uh, along with some other things. But as far as the hard rocks go, again, it depends on the jurisdiction that you're in. Uh, Africa, I think, can go on pretty quickly. I don't, I don't, I wouldn't know a time frame. But here in Canada, in the Athabasca Basin area historically an open pit mine would go and would go from discovery into production within six to twelve years with an average being about eight years so that's not bad that's uh, kind of typical with a lot of other operations around the world underground, you're looking at Cigar Lake, discovered in uh, 1981, I think it was, didn't go into production till 2016, so that's 35 years from discovery to production. There are other discoveries made that, like I said, are 50 million pounds, and they're just still sitting there, even being discovered in the 70s. Now you're looking at 50 years from discovery and still no, no sign of production. So with our thesis, you know, we think that we can we can hit those six to 10 year marks, but it, it all depends on a lot of logistics. So it all depends on a lot of factors and, and what's happening, but uh, we hope yeah. that, yeah, we hope that our projects do have the right logistics uh, that could make that could take something from discovery into production within this current market cycle. That's what we're trying to achieve.
0: Yeah. Do you think they're gonna, there will be a continuous undersupply as we move through the decade and even going into the next decade just because of the length of um, time it takes to get a mine in production and also with discoveries not necessarily coming online as quickly or, or even um, and then obviously going through the permitting, do you think there's just going to be an undersupply, continuous undersupply moving forward for, for it's a, a big vi- period, long period of time? Yeah,
1: it's a viable possibility. I could, I could definitely see that happening. I can see that happening more than supply being met to be very honest. But again that that also depends on some mines there there are a lot of deposits out there that do need those ho- higher spot prices. So if the spot price can stay high and long-term contract prices can be can be signed at higher prices, let's even say $100 per pound, then I do think that there are some operations that can come online and start to start to uh, Provide supply. Will that happen? I honestly don't know. I'm hoping that we can make a discovery that can add to supply before then. Yeah. (laughs) That's and that's the benefit of Athabasca. Athabasca's high grades. Yeah, one Cigar Lake provided about 13% of global uranium production in 2019. That's one mine providing providing a lot of supply. That's it's the benefit of the high grades that we see out here, where you can be a major supplier with one mine. So if we, can, if we can discover these high-grade open pits, there's your mine supplier, right? there's your world supply almost right there.
0: Yeah, got you. Um, right, so as a, as a conclusion, I just wondered if you can give us an overview of um, Baselow's exploration plans sort of over the next six, 12 or even 18 months.
1: Yeah, for sure. So we do have three wonderful projects, as mentioned, Catharsis Hook and Shadow. Uh, each of them are all, they're all equal in their own rights for exploration potential. I've kind of mentioned them as, or I've likened them to my children, that I can't prefer <laughs> one over the other. They're all special in their own way. So we're, we're putting a lot of effort onto all three projects and trying to get them all into the drill ready state. Uh, currently, well, uh, so as, as our exploration goes, we always fly airborne surveys first just to cover the entire project uh, with magnetics, with uh, electromagnetics, um, in, in depending on the project, and sometimes radiometrics that's looking for surface anomalies and, and gravity surveys as well. That basically gets us almost to that drill-ready state. Sometimes it can be drill-ready, which is what we're hoping to do with these so we have completed a number of airborne surveys we still have a uh, few to complete on each of the projects and i've got i've got my field crew out in the bush right now who are working on catharsis and hook and just looking at just looking at the geology, trying to understand what's out there, uh, trying to see if we can identify the structures that we're interested in or analogs to them, uh, just trying to find any, any forms of alteration. So once we have all that information back then we'll compile it with the geophysics and just pick our best drill targets. And then for drilling anyway, we are scheduled to start drilling on our Hoke project in August. and we're scheduled to start drilling on our, our catharsis project in October. And then our shadow project is kind of looking like uh, early winter 2022 for for drilling on there. We're hopeful.
0: Okay. Well, appreciate your your time, James, Um, and give us an overview of obviously uh, Baseload's um, company and what what you have been doing and what you're looking to do. Um, Obviously, wish you well in the future. Um, Obviously, you've got a wealth of experience in the the sector. Um, You're a geologist by background, so... Um, you do obviously understand understand the the um, obviously the technicalities of, of yep. what you're doing. So, if our audience wants to reach out to you, if they've got any questions, how can they go about doing that?
1: Easiest way is via email. Um, always, I always answer email, and there are two ways. You can email the company directly at yeah. info at baseload b a s e l o d e dot com, or you can send me an email personally. That's J Sykes, J S Y K E S. At uraniumgeologist, singular, not plural, dot com.
0: Yeah, and are you on any social media platforms at all? Uh,
1: yeah, we're on LinkedIn as well, and we are all uh, we're also on Twitter.
0: Okay, and um, if um, I'll put those in the show notes accompanying this, so if anyone uh, wants to refer back to that, they can refer to the show notes and contact you if they've got any questions. Perfect. Yeah. Um, Appreciate your time, James. Hope you enjoy listening to this episode. Um, I think uranium is an exciting uh, commodity, um, something that I have been following literally over the last six months um, and just getting more knowledge around, around the sector day by day. And obviously, James has given, given a good overview of um, the, the current market at the moment and what what Baseload are looking to do Um in the in the undersupply of this uh, of uh, this commodity, Bob. Um, well, can I ask you a quick question before we go? Yes, yeah, sorry, sorry to interrupt your. no rap. no, that's fine.
1: You're so. What drew what drew you to uranium investing for the past six months, and what's your takeaway on it?
0: Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, do you know what I think? You're the first guest to actually asked me <laughs> a question, <laughs> so you put me on the spot. Um, I, because obviously I've been doing a lot of these podcasts and learning more about the industry as a whole um, and obviously the people that I've been listening to have been talking about uranium a lot a lot of the the information and education that I've been looking at a lot of people have been speaking about gold and silver but then there's have been talking about uranium and what's what I suppose I've got interested in is the the thesis behind uranium, what it's what it's needed, what it's used for, the undersupply, um, the history behind the last 15, 20 years of uranium. Um, and it's building up for a, a case of we need we actually need uranium. Um, there's an undersupply as obviously, as you've mentioned, um, and it's essential to turning on the lights and using it as power um so just that whole thesis and me understanding that is and obviously like i said i've been learning about that and i have been investing in some some companies um and i'm I'm signed up for a few uh, signed up to a few newsletters as well so again i'm just building my understanding of um of that particular sector and it's certainly an interesting and compelling um compared to probably gold and silver so um yeah, that's, that's, that's what I'm taking away. And, um, and again, by doing these podcasts and li- uh, reading newsletters, I'm, I'm gaining more experience or understanding more around this particular sector. So um, a lot of the things that you've said, I can resonate with because I've, I've been listening, been listening and learning um, about the, about the uranium sector.
1: Yeah, that's fantastic to hear. So hopefully your, uh, your listeners all follow suit as well and
0: yeah, do yeah, their own so- learning
1: or just, just, Go on a whim based on, yeah. based on our talk.
0: Yeah, yeah, certainly. And like, like I said, I've only been like following this the last six months. And um, and it's definitely a sector that you should that you should look into. Um, it's not necessarily out there as much as gold and silver. Um, but that's probably the best time to invest when not as many people, it's not in the spotlight um, because it will be over the coming years. So um, those that are listening, um, follow base loads, Obviously, um, journey and and just really understand the uranium section in a bit more detail because it is something. It is it is going to be coming into I suppose people's minds over the coming coming years because it is needed. Um, And as Rick Bull, who I've interviewed a couple of times on his podcast, if we run out of uranium, we won't be able to turn the lights on. So um, it is needed. Absolutely. Yeah. So I appreciate you guys listening. Pass this, uh, please share and pass this, uh, podcast on to others in the industry. Um, especially those guys that, um, that are probably listening to this who are in the gold, silver, copper, other commodity sectors. Um, appreciate if you can pass this on to others so they actually understand uranium and understand the importance and significance of this, uh, of this, um, energy supply because Like I said, it's going to be needed ever more um, over the coming years. So, um, James, really appreciate your time for taking the time to do this podcast. And until next time, happy mining. Thank you for listening. Remember to reach out to Rob via the show notes and be sure to subscribe and leave a review. Until next time, happy mining, helping each other to improve the mining industry.